You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I was just reminded that I think this is the guest that we've had on more than any other, even more than Joe Minicozzi, which uh, is is uh, <laughs> a big deal. Saying a lot. Yeah. So welcome. I'm not going to do a fancy introduction even. I'm just going to say welcome back, Jeff Speck, to the Strong Towns podcast. Nice to see you. It's great to be here. You know, you're my you're my second favorite podcast now after Strong Songs, which is a wonderful. If you've never heard of it, no. I've just discovered this. Uh, I'm joking. You're still my favorite, but there's <laughs> there's a wonderful podcast called Strong Songs, where each episode, the host, who's a brilliant musician, plays every instrument, just about, and teaches music. Uh, he picks a great song, pop song, a rock song, or something like you know, like. Mr. Blue Sky by ELO or Barracuda by Heart. And he spends an episode breaking it down and telling you everything you need to know about the song bar by bar. It's fantastic. So as Strong Towns, you should check out Strong Songs. I believe so. Let, let me ask you an off-topic question then. Are you a music person? I know that you're a musician. I used to be a jazz sax player and played all through my childhood. And then I do not currently play an instrument. With any regularity, I like going to the the BSO, the wonderful orchestra we have here in Boston. Um, there's a great jazz club not too far away from there that is the longest running jazz club, I think, in, in the Northeast called Wally's. My father, who was an orthodontist, retired back into his true love of being a jazz musician. And my brother is a, is a, is a pretty successful conductor and writer of books about music. So I'm really I into music. I knew that. I knew that. But I'm yeah. not. I'm not. I don't qualify. I, although it was as recently as Wednesday that I was singing karaoke in Hyannis, Massachusetts, around a presentation of our plan to fix their downtown, which was strangely scheduled on a Wednesday, the one night that Embargo has karaoke in Hyannis, Massachusetts. Perfect. <laughs> you will not hear me singing anywhere except in church and there very poorly. <laughs> I feel like my past is catching up to me in the last year, I've developed the ringing in your ears. It makes music a little bit different now, like a little more stressful because it actually gets worse with loud. the louder things are. It's kind of like a sad annoyance now because I feel like my your perception range changes as you get older. And I've had the hearing tests. I was in the army and screwed up one of my ears firing rifles. I had a my hearing protection fall out and cause some damage. But I did the hearing tests and they show me the range and the highs are now much diminished. And it was funny because he said, the doctor said, if you, there's a female voice speaking to you in the other room, you probably won't be able to hear them. And I'm like, that's exactly <laughs> the excuse. Saying that for you. <laughs> that's exactly the excuse I wanted. Thank you. That's great. That's all you need. I wasn't yeah. in the army. I wasn't in the army, but I did in 1979 sit in the second row at a Blue Oyster Cult concert, Black Sabbath. Same Blue effect, Cult, probably right yeah. in front of the speakers, and I did lose some of my hearing. Ellen Dunham Jones, co-author of uh, Retrofitting Suburbia, she has complained of tinnitus for many years. You should talk to her about your shared affliction. I will. You and I are chatting today because I have this brand new version of Walkable City on my desk, and in the side it says. Updated with a hundred pages of new material, hundred plus pages, and an introduction by Jeanette Sedek Khan, tenth anniversary edition. So I'm telling you, to everybody listening to this, of course, if you're listening to this, you've read this book already. Like I'm assuming you have read this book, but you have not read this book, which does have. And I, I'm hearing your publisher in the back of my brain because I've submitted things to publishers and said, "Well, wait a sec, we weren't asking for that much book." This is like a new book onto the end of the old book, right? Well, the new book is 40% as large as the old book. So it's a new four-tenths of a book. But it's everything that I observed and felt I needed to share or comment upon from the last decade. Let's do this because I feel like this is the best way to set this up. I think there's an obvious question 
you know, why did you feel a, a need to issue a 10 year anniversary edition? I think I know the answer to that, but I want you to say it. And then uh, to me, there's something of a testament here to the the original book, right? I mean, very few books sell as well as yours has. Very few books are, uh, you know, kind of as universally embraced as this book has been. But we're 10 years out. Very, very few books get an update at 10 years. What What is it about this particular book that prompted, you know, the publisher to ask for this and you to deliver it and, and to go through this exercise? I think it was my idea. Okay. <laughs> Well, you know, (laughs) the the publisher was open to it. It's the same publisher who published Suburban Nation all those years ago and who actually requested a 10th anniversary or co-conspired with us to do a 10th anniversary edition of Suburban Nation. But that one included some framing material. You know, uh, Andres, Liz and I each wrote a little preface about ideas that went into the making of the book, but it wasn't updated at all. In this case, because walkable city is really about American cities and American downtowns. And so much has changed about them in the last 10 years. I do feel that most of the material I would, I would attest, I would argue that most of the material in walkable city is still relevant and pretty much right. But the, the object of the writing has changed so much in 10 years that I did feel there was a lot to be added that would make it a more useful book. So, you know, what prompted the publisher to be interested I'm I I share your um well I hope you share my pleasure at the success of the book. When I wrote it I didn't think it would be such a big book. I thought it would, I thought it would do all right. I thought it would do about as well as Suburban Nation. Like many authors I won't pretend to be any better than this. I pretty often am going to that Amazon ranking and <laughs> seeing how the book is doing. You're up there too Chuck, but but it's just been remarkable how, you know, 10 years out of all the new books that have been printed in the last 10 years, it's the one that's hanging up there with with Jane Jacobs and Chris Alexander, et cetera. So the interest is still there. So that that put an even more, a greater burden on me, honestly, to make sure that those who bought it were getting everything that they could out of it. And so uh, obviously there were, there was a lot to say about the housing crisis, both the, you know, the, the crisis in available housing and the crisis in the history of racist production of housing, which I didn't, uh, distribution of housing, which I didn't discuss in the first edition, and I learned a lot about in the last decade. There's a ton to say about uh, about the promise, quote unquote, promise of autonomous vehicles, the impact of Uber and Lyft. Didn't want to say the same things about COVID, but there was a lot I think I had to contribute to the conversation about the impact of COVID on cities. And then, of course, uh, details, a lot of stuff I learned from you even more so in the last decade about exactly how criminally negligent the transportation engineering profession is, <laughs> which I really enjoyed framing in my own way, but I'm sure you heard your own voice in there. And then a bike chapter that really needed updating because bike infrastructure has changed so much in the last decade. And then finally, uh, this isn't everything that's in there, but I learned a lot about trees. Uh, and there's a tree chapter in the old version, but uh, I, I didn't have the courage of my convictions, perhaps, in some of the things I was arguing for in the earlier book. And I subsequently did a did a massive urban forestry plan for Cedar Rapids when they lost fully two thirds of their canopy, 670,000 trees in an hour and a half, a year and a half ago. And we had to write a plan to bring their trees back. So I, I became a tree expert or an urban forestry expert as much as I could having not been educated in it, because they asked me to lead that plan. And of course, I teamed up with the right people to get it done properly. But but um, I had a lot I wanted to say. Simple things I learned about trees, not just more amazing information about all the great things trees do, but some pretty common sense stuff that I didn't really know. For example, you know, most people, when they have a tight street space, they think they should put a small tree in there, Right. And in fact, many urban many urban planning codes say, you know, for, for the space is less than the size of a space, then put in a crepe myrtle or a Bradford pear or whatever. In fact, and if you draw it, you'll see this. When you put a small tree in a small space, it clutters the space. When you put a big tree in a small space, it shelters the space and actually doesn't get in the way. So there's all, all sorts of little lessons like that that I had to add. You know, I feel now like the book is complete for this moment. 
And maybe in 10 years from now, I'll have to do it again. People who who get it will have a book that is both all the good oldies, but but hopefully stuff they can use today as well. I know there are a lot of people, you know, adjacent to our conversation that haven't read it. It's always a good like introduction to these topics. It it does feel like the original book was wishful in its thinking or or forward-looking in its thinking. While today, when you go back and read what you wrote a decade ago, if you wrote it today, it would be in a sense documenting the last 10 years of success. <laughs> Is that a fair it, it, I that's it, how it I landed kind of, just in time. You were at the front of the wave then. Yeah. I would contrast it with suburbanation. And if you're if your listeners don't know suburbanation, I really do hope that they'll read it. Suburbanation is the book that until Walkable City came out, it's the book people would come up to me at conferences and say, Thank you for creating that book because it's the reason I became a planner. That's what people would say. And I would always respond accurately. I told you it changed my life. Yeah. So I would respond accurately, well, you can thank me. That's great. You should know that I say the same thing to Andres and Liz because it was hearing Andres particularly Andres Duani speak that that put me on my career path. And of course, so much of suburbanation is stuff I learned from him uh, and Liz. But but what's funny is suburbanation could have come out fully formed in 1990. And it came out in 2000. But those ideas really hung around. And it's a good thing that that they discouraged me from writing it all those years in between, because no one would have been freaking ready for that book in 1990. You know, I, I hesitate to to think how it would have fared. Maybe it would have done well, but I don't know. But definitely, Walkable City, I was only slightly. Andres and Liz were 20 years ahead of their time. I was like two years ahead of my time. <laughs> you mentioned the Amazon ratings, and I brought it up here as we're talking, because I, I am, as an author, I am familiar with this too. Who frequently bought together. A year and a half. But man, every time, and this for the people who are listening to this, not watching it, I'm showing the page for confessions and confessions has frequently bought together and and walkable city is always listed adjacent to everything that i've ever written and i'm going to say this you know th- this is to me it's one thing to have a book that is frequently bought together that came out in the last 18 months it's another thing to have a book that came out a decade ago that's still being purchased and and passed around and is an important part of conversations and when when i go to cities and I meet with them, I look out in the audience and there's people carrying your book. There's people walking around with your book. There's people who are using it as, and the 101 Rules book that that goes with it, but are using this as a way to communicate ideas to other people. And to me, that's the hallmark of a great book, right? I appreciate that. I think your listeners don't want to hear us talk about my books anymore, except okay. to say, except <laughs> to say, I mean, we'll talk about the subject. Let's talk about the subject matter that's in the books. But I do want to say something I probably said to you before, but it, it bears repeating. It, for convincing other people to do this work or to spread the word in your community or to introduce these issues, this is definitely the book. If you're already in the trenches doing the work, I would direct your listeners to Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places, which is full of pictures and charts and graphs and much more data. It's much more of a, of a book for people, you know, technicians and activists who are in the trenches. So let's stop there with the compliments which i really appreciate you know strong towns is not a new book and that's often up there in the top as well and and you know from our last podcast that i'm a hugest fan and from a a, a piece of this book's update that i'm the hugest fan of confessions of recovering engineer which i recommend everywhere i go i know you do i hear it but let's let's uh, let's get into the topics in the books i do want to talk about covid you have a big, big section in here about COVID. There's a few things that I wrote down that I just want you to enunciate. And and the first one is this immediate reaction. And I think, you know, the governor of New York kind of crystallized it in a quote that you have in the book about, you know, New York being too dense and people need to get out. And there was this hysterics. And I come from a small town. I come from a rural area. And there was hysterics around here. People are coming from Minneapolis up to our city and bringing us COVID. Can you talk a little bit about just the idea of cities as bad when it comes to the pandemic and how there's so much like nuance to that? The cities versus sprawl versus the countryside. Uh, the data now that we have some time to look at it uh, are very clear, and they show that cities are no better or no worse 
than anywhere else when it comes to your likelihood of getting COVID. That's what the data show. The natural reaction we all had that COVID comes from people, more people, more COVID, people closer to you, people denser, more COVID. You know, it caused a lot of suburban decanting and, and rural movement. You know, that was irrelevant <laughs> to your chances of getting COVID. But the more interesting data... It was hot for a news cycle, but it yeah. really was not... Yeah. But I think I think most people who haven't read deeply or looked into it any further still believe in their subconscious, if not their conscious minds, that they're safer from catching pandemics if they avoid cities cities and other dense areas. But the, the really interesting data showed that, that and, and very statistically significant, showed that you were much more likely to, well, significant, sorry, significantly more likely to die from COVID if you were in a rural or suburban area than if you were in an urban area. So it was, it was safer to be in the city in terms of survival. And then people jumped to the conclusion that that was a wealth factor or about the quality of the hospitals, which is, you know, which is a natural conclusion to achieve. But what the studies found is, and this isn't so much a lesson about where you should locate, because probably your body shape isn't going to change much, any of us, in the next few years. But it's, a, it's a, another lesson about cities. The reason why rural areas and suburban areas were having worse outcomes from COVID and more deaths from COVID was because people were in worse shape in the cities and the, and the rural areas. So basically it was a function of how much how much activity you were getting and and some of the doctors it was like it was like I had scripted the epidemiologist because what they were saying was it would be the worst thing for our health for people to move out of cities because uh, people in cities are healthier because people walk more when they're in cities and I was like thank you very much. You know the the main lesson there was that people who walk are more likely to bounce back from any illness. To me, this is astounding. In the early days of the pandemic, I remember us having this conversation here in the office about what would happen when the virus got to Africa and African right. nations. Yeah, right. And there was a certain level of apprehension because the idea was, again, not good hospitals, not great healthcare system. A lot of reasons why those places would fit, you know, Great, even greater densities in a lot of places. And that was not the case at all. It didn't happen that way. And I came up with this theory internally that I called the kindling theory, which got everybody kind of mad because that was very, they said it was very distasteful. So I'll repeat it on this podcast. The idea was that I look around my hometown here, which beautiful people, like I love them. They're my neighbors, but we have a really high rate of obesity, even for the state of Minnesota, because everybody here drives everywhere they go. I walk six blocks to work and I am a radical. Like I'm, an, I'm a crazy person because I walk so much, right? I go to Boston. I go to where you're at. I go to DC. I go to New York. I see people who are anecdotally and statistically thinner, less obese, have, have lower rates of obesity. And it's hard not to connect the fact that they are walking everywhere to this. When the virus got to Africa, they didn't have the death rates we have here, right? You know, and we're all sensitive about about body shaming, but in fact, I think that the fear of body shaming caused the news to not adequately report the fact that COVID deaths were tremendously related to to weight, actually. Yeah. And then, of course, there is a there is a factor that wasn't measured, but of course, in more rural areas that have lower education uh, attainment, people are making worse decisions about <laughs> how to respond to the virus. Which is my segue for my final line in this in this little bit about cities are safer. I, I quoted the comedian Jimmy Carr, who says the spread of COVID was directly linked to how dense the population is, and some of the population are really quite fucking dense. <laughs> but now I'm just being an urban snob. <laughs> well, the obesity insight to me, obviously, there was a lot of voices during the pandemic and 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 still about this. But what was clear to me, and I think your book brings this out too, is that heading into the pandemic, so before there was any notion of COVID-19 or anything, urban people are just healthier in the US in general. 
largely because they just are in a daily case more active. It's not that they go to the gym more. It's not that they work out more. It's not that they have cleaner air, you know, which I think you can even argue that we have cleaner air. It is because on a day-to-day basis, they are getting normal human activity where you are starved of that in places where people have high, long commutes and and are not walking. Well, I quote, you know, the the epidemiologists who wrote Urban Sprawl and Public Health. They say that the reason why we have a health crisis in the U.S. is because we've engineered out of existence the useful walk in our community. Right, right. Yeah. I want to give you a moment to talk about reckless drivers because I, I have talked about this to no end and I, the audience is sick of me talking about it. I love the humility you had in the book where you said you kind of bought the narrative at first of like insane people wrecked by COVID, like ripping off their seatbelts. And I got this from you. I mean, this is, this is pure Chuck Maroney here. If you can forgive me. Okay, good. (laughs) I'll just read this one paragraph because I really like the way it turned out, but talk about bike sales, blah, blah, blah. But most people fell into cars, which they then piloted around the city with the most extreme abandon. Or so the experts would have us believe, in some Jekyll and Hyde transmogrification, normally calm and peaceable motorists confronted with a pandemic, metamorphized into road-raging speed demons. The picture painted by the highway agencies and road builders was of panicked motorists screaming, ah, COVID, and throwing off their seatbelts, punching the accelerators through the floorboards. (laughs) And then I talk about what you talk about, which is that, in fact, it was just a reduction in congestion that led to all these traffic deaths. I think I'm going to, I'm asking you a cultural question, but I'm, I'm really, you and I have arrived in similar places, but from a different journey. And I feel like your circle of, of acquaintances and professional colleagues and friends is very different than, than mine. Why are we so eager to want to believe this? Why is, why are people who are really, really deep in safety culture and very sensitive to the idea that cars are killing people and that SUVs are a problem and speed. Why is there this desire to believe this narrative of the broken human, the reckless driver, the horrible person? Well, this may be going deeper than you want, but I think there's a fundamental kind of cognitive dissonance happening whenever we talk about safety and speed, which is the fact that we as a culture, but every, every society as a culture, not us uniquely, um, are very willing to trade uh, lives for speed every day. As much as we all want our downtown streets, and this is where it becomes easy. Okay, people are walking here. People are biking here. Uh, we need to create an environment which causes the speeds that we want to see in this location, as opposed to over-engineering everything, which, of course, is the great American negligence. But the simple issue is, you know, if we were really concerned like if we really weren't willing, if our risk homeostasis equilibrium wasn't such that we were were not willing to die, you know, be one of the hundred, one out of a hundred Americans who die in a car crash, any, you know, in their lifetimes, we wouldn't go fifty-five, we wouldn't go sixty, we wouldn't go seventy on a highway, right? We would, we would never drive that fast. So the the, the so it's it we are willing to throw the dice. When the, you know, the odds are in our favor, right? <laughs> There's a 99% chance I won't die in a car crash. In, in any think, instance, right. Yep. Yeah, but I, I do think that we have sublimated, if that's the right word, the thought process, the, the trade-off we've chosen to make, which is that only at a speed of zero are we truly safe. You know? Right, right. It does seem to be a very American trade-off, right? I've often thought of it in terms of like, Europeans coming across the ocean in waves of immigration back in the 1700s, or Americans going west on the Oregon Trail. It's like we set off with 100 of us. We know that 10, 15, 20 of us are going to die along this route for random reasons, but we accept that because what's at the end of it is like a better life ostensibly. And I, I think about like we have that ingrained in our brain somehow. But yet, what's what's at the end of the trip? Like Walmart, McDonald's drive-through. Like I, I just I struggle with the like how our brains are able to. Did you ever read the book Watership Down as a kid? Uh, I did. Yeah, I barely remember. Okay. It. I remember the bunny rabbit on the cover. 
the bunny rabbit on the cover. But remember, they wind up in this warren where it's the warren of the snares is what it's called. And everybody lives these great lives. Like they're all big. They're all healthy. They're all really good. But every now and then they're, they're that way because the farmer comes out and kills all their predators and leaves them food. And it's like this trade-off. Every now and then, one of you is going to die in a snare and become food for the farmer, but everybody else gets to live like a much better life. And the rabbits that are coming at the, the, the part of the book reject that and say, I want to live a real life. I don't want this trade-off. And it seems to me like we have accepted that trade-off somehow as Americans. And I really struggle to break out of that. How do you think about this? I, well, in my first edition of the book, I did talk about, you know, the fact that there aren't that many places in the world. I mean, Australia is one of them, I guess, Canada. There aren't that many places in the world where where everyone who's here comes from, almost almost everyone that's here comes from uh, not that long ago, a lineage of people who were really into being mobile. <laughs> right. True, <laughs> you know, and, true. And I, I have the comment in the earlier book. Back in the 19th century, two brothers are sitting on a dock in uh, Formosa or, uh, you know, or Timbuktu or whatever. And one of them had the balls to get in a boat and the other didn't. And that's the one whose kids were American, you know. <laughs> so, you know, we've always been a, a highly mobile society. Rather than, you know, as amateur philosophers digging down into that more deeply, I think it's much more helpful to just distinguish between regional mobility and the road trip and the uh, willingness to to pull up roots and relocate versus the day-to-day choices we make about living in environments where you are uh, moving at high speed at a regular regularly you know you don't have to deny the inherent mobility dna that we've inherited to still want to have a day-to-day life in which you are not hypermobile and you know hypermobility and biologists observe that that uh, zoologists observe that that hypermobility in in any species is a sign of distress right so that's not a positive thing but then you read books like the song lines by Bruce Chatwin have you read that book no. um, about aboriginal paths through australia and it talks about how actually we come from uh, we were we were all once nomads right humans were once all until we settled down with uh, as hunter gatherers we were all nomadic. Now we're getting way off the deep end. But the reason that rocking a baby apparently comforts a baby is because it's the pace of a mother walking. And that when the mother stops walking, the baby knows it's in danger. So it starts to cry. So you rock it. And this idea that actually is an entire species, not just those who chose to come to America, we haven't yet shed the nomadic, constantly on the move nature of our uh, inheritance. I'd like to think that over you know, a couple hundred generations. I, I haven't done the math. Hundred thousand, I don't know. However many generations, I guess it'd be about uh, five hundred generations since since we started being non nomadic. Um, that maybe we've learned how to stay in one place without without being on the march every couple of days. I don't know. You you have the one anecdote in a couple of chapters prior about the rats being wheeled around. And how they they become actually dumber at doing rat things. So there's a there's a cognitive scientist who studies rats, but he's thinking about all animals, including humans. He was profiled, I think, in the New York Times Sunday Magazine, which is where I saw it, or maybe it was the New Yorker. We East Coast elites only read the New Yorker and the New York Times, but maybe the Atlantic, just to mix it up a bit, Chuck. He's pretty much demonstrated with experiments that thinking well under self-propelled mobility, that thinking as you yourself walk is the most effective type of thinking, but moreover, that moving as you think is a part of the process. And that it isn't just moving while you think, it is, if you're being moved, if the rats in the maze are, or mice, whatever they are, are self-mobile, are self-mobilizing, they're very smart, but if someone else moves them around, they become, they become dumb. It's not the act of being moved. It's the process of using, because when you're moving, your brain is actually using, I read this study once about people with Parkinson's. And one of the things that Parkinson's does is it it creates difficulty in your pathways of making the connections that we take for granted. So your hand going here, your leg going here. And, and, and one of the ways that they treat it 
is to just have people do things over and over because you're rewiring pathways. As I read that section, it occurred to me how much correlation there is between essentially, I want to get my juices flowing in my brain. One way to kind of get it up to a cruising level is to start walking and then just let the rest of it kind of, uh, you know, marinate, right? I'm actually looking for the passage. I probably won't find it, but there's just tons of philosophers and others over the years who have, uh, uh, you know, they said Goethe was the last man to do to know everything. And that's a reference both to, both to how smart he was, but also that was a point in history, the last point in history where one man could know everything. You know, he walked six hours a day. <laughs> and, you know, the connection between walking and thinking, I think, is very strong. But I didn't really articulate it right, but basically that that somehow intelligence, human intelligence, is deeply linked to human self-empowered movement. And walking is the great way to do that. Let me ask you an, uh, one last question about COVID. It did seem to me like our cities, I'm going to say this, and I welcome you to push back. I look at a snapshot of February 2020, and now, you know, February 2023. And I think our cities are better today than they were three years ago, having come through the pandemic. And, and you talk about, you know, streets that were taken back from cars and made more walkable. You talk about on-street dining. There were a whole bunch of things that people had been pushing for that all of a sudden the pandemic hits and now they're possible. What is the what's the verdict on those things? Is there a push to keep them? You think widespread? Did, were there lessons learned? What did this do for us as a, a movement of people who want to see more walkability? I think um, you know Jeanette Sadakan talks in the preface that she wrote, and then I also cite some information in in my bit um, that the majority of those transformations have been rolled back, right? mostly when it came to putting lanes to other purposes. So the cars were very quick to reclaim their space. Or I should say municipal governments were very quick to, even in anticipation of traffic coming back, not, not because of congestion, but in anticipation of that congestion. Uh, for example, Beacon Street that runs by my house here, as it went through Coolidge Corner, which is the heart of Brookline where I live adjacent to Boston, um, they removed two driving lanes out of a four-lane street and pushed sidewalk into the street bike lanes i mean they really they, they pushed everything in the parked cars moved in and we really we cut our throughput effectively in half on this street i think it could have stayed like that honestly most cities the open streets which you know meant closing them to cars have been reclosed and open to cars but the one thing not exclusively not entirely but most of them the one thing that has really uh, stuck around is the sidewalk dining. Of course, now we're in the hibernation mode, but the sidewalk dining in so many places has increased dramatically. Um, and liquor licenses. I know here in Massachusetts, for example, there were all these loopholes to getting uh, to be able to serve, um, particularly drinks and stuff on the sidewalk. And they just they broke right through that. And those those rules are not being changed back. Right. That was like a Puritan hangover. Like, yeah, it's time. Yeah. To, it was time to move on <laughs> yeah. um, from that. So that's good news. I can't concur. I mean, you asked me to push back. I mean, San Francisco, half of San Francisco's offices are still empty, Chuck. I haven't been in Des Moines in a year and a half. But when I was last in Des Moines, it felt like a neutron bomb had hit Des Moines. I mean, because sure. the, the, these downtowns like, the, like Des Moines or Omaha, which are just like CBDs with tons of office and tons of structured parking and not that much else that we're just beginning to get that 24 seven, you know, Jane Jacobs vibe. Um, I hope that they're bouncing back and then I can't say they are fully. And then you have this real conundrum of the 120 foot thick office floor plate that really does not want to be housing. So it's great that all this class B and C housing from the 1950s and, and before can be converted sorry offices 1950s and earlier offices can be converted to housing and many of them are starting to be and that's really great to see and what most of our downtowns and particularly our cbds need is a higher housing to office ratio but there's whole chunks of downtown that were you know these thick modern office plates that are still half empty and that that is worrisome that is trouble my proposal for des moines in in the book update is that 
the office the offices might take a while to convert, but there's a lot of excess parking lots, surface parking lots surrounding those offices that are not only were empty every night all night, uh, but now they're two thirds empty during the day. I think that land needs to be converted to housing, and it'll balance itself out where people are starting to walk to work and walk home from work and live and work in the same neighborhood. And these neighborhoods are pretty nice. They just didn't have many people in them. You, of course, are very kind to me. You have a whole chapter about engineers and confessions. I want to ask you one thing about that chapter, because I know we've talked about a lot of those things before, but I don't think we've talked about traffic signals and the huge, enormous waste of time that traffic signals is. Traffic signals are so this is the one thing I want to bring up, even though I didn't want to repeat anything we talked to about before. Let me just bring up two things because city planning is so is so complicated and, and there's so many moving parts. It's often overwhelming. Like, how do I make my city better? You know, where do I start? Let me just say that no one wants to be the guy that shows up with a rubber stamp. But if that rubber stamp is reversing an earlier rubber stamp that wrecked cities, then it's okay to show up with the rubber stamp. And right now I have two rubber stamps and I bring them everywhere I go. And I'm waiting for the countervailing example that voids the logic of the rubber stamp. And that is if you converted your two-way streets to one way, you need to convert them back. And when you do so, or even if you haven't done so, you need to look for every signal that doesn't need to be a signal and make it an all-way stop sign. Both of those things independently reduce serious crashes by about two-thirds. So you can reduce your serious crashes by about two-thirds by converting a multi-lane one-way network back to uh, two-way, as I've done in six or seven places and other cities have done in about 100 places. You can do that. As Philadelphia learned when they converted 472 signals from signals to stop signs, serious crashes dropped by about 62% and serious pedestrian injury crashes by about 68% when that happened. And if you stop for a minute, just take the time, listeners, just take the time and think about how cars behave in a signalized intersection versus how cars behave in a stop sign intersection. People are like, oh, everyone's rolling through this intersection. So what? They're rolling through the intersection. How many people are dying because cars are rolling through the intersection. Rolling, right, exactly. Yeah. Whereas a, a green light is a is an invitation to speed. And often the anticipation of the green light is a cause of speed. It's, it's, it's insane that we have so many signals where we should have stop signs. And then a final kind of wonderful, uh, you know, concatenation of these two things is that when your street system works like this, theoretically, you can't have a stop sign there. Because who goes? Do you go? Do I go? Who goes next? But when you make it two-way, two-lane, and there's only one lane in any given direction, then the always stop sign works. So in fact, the, the, the former correction often opens the doors for the latter correction. Although I should say, Chuck, I just discovered for the second time in California, this one in San Diego, a three-laner intersecting a three-laner, both one way with a stop sign. And I'm very curious to go visit and see how it works. I have to have Howard take me out to that one. I was once in Austin at rush hour and something had gone wrong and all the lights were flashing red. And that's a multi-lane one-way downtown. It seemed to work. I was I was in Sinclair Black's uh, convertible Jaguar and we were just driving through the uh, <laughs> driving through and it seemed to work okay. But mm-hmm. most people will tell you you can't do that. But it's a very important point that I discovered in Albuquerque and that you also put in your book that you actually get through the downtown faster More when, there's, when yes. there's no signals. And people are like, I don't want stop signs. I have to stop at every intersection. But you're going to get home sooner right. because you're never sitting there. And you're going to get That's home it. safer. You're going to get home. <laughs> it's another one of those human psychology things that I've thought about a lot. Because somehow we mentally will will be fine making the trade-off of, I'm going to sit here for a while. If then when it's green, I get to own this space and I get to yeah. move. Yeah, And the reality is, is you sacrifice a lot of time for that privilege of, yeah. of being able to go fast yeah. and then sitting. It's Forgive me if I've mentioned this to you before. I don't think I have. Did I ever tell you about Butte, Montana in there? Huh. I was no, doing go for it. There. 
and I'm going to get the number wrong by a factor, maybe 20%, but they were like, they were Butte, Montana, where Evil Knievel's from, and the hills are like this, was a eight, eight signal town. And gosh darn it, they did not want to be a seven signal town because, you know, they were big cities. You've arrived, right, yeah. There was an intersection where there kept being crashes. There was probably a crash every two months at this intersection. But they wouldn't change to a stop sign. You know, no one thought it would work anyway. And then someone ran into the light and destroyed it. They had to fix the light, but they had to raise the money to fix the light. So for like a year, they put up a temporary stop sign. At the end of the year, they've raised the money to replace the stop sign. But guess what? Not one crash for a whole year on this regularly. And they're like, okay, I guess we don't have to put that one <laughs> That's a great story. Have they removed any other stop signs? No. Yeah. The natural experiment. Let's talk a little bit about induced demand. Is is the narrative on congestion shifting? I feel like it is in our circles, right? Like in cover story of the New York Times a month, the month ago. Yes, or yes, yeah. yes. Is this starting to become more Main Street orthodoxy, or are we still heretics on the outside in this one? I think it's going to be one of these many things in American life where the majority will begin to understand it, but it still won't impact the outcomes. Okay. Because there's, there's, there's <laughs> well, that's so depressing. Much, yeah. I mean, there's so much money to be made from the status quo, right? That uh, it's like it's like campaign finance reform. I mean, yeah, we all know that actually we don't have a democracy anymore because uh, what used to be called corruption is now perfectly legal, which is that, you know, people pay a ton of money into your campaign. And once you know it, your doors are open and you listen to their issues when they come to Washington. That used to be illegal. It's not anymore. Everyone knows that. And it's not going to change because people in power uh, benefit from it being the way that it is. Similarly, obviously, uh, there's a, the, the people who run state DOTs and county DOTs are often rotating on and off of the uh, CEO role in asphalt and you know other yeah, yeah. Uh, comp- road building companies. And there's too much benefit to, you know, in the what is it? I mean, half of American states, maybe more, Chuck, have a highway expansion currently planned, right? I mean, it's- Oh, no doubt. Yeah. something. I just want to win the intellectual argument. You know, <laughs> I just want, like, I'm okay with, uh, I'm, well, I'm not okay with, with the fact that people don't do what they, what they really know to be right. But I do want people to understand why it's happening and that it's happening because of greed, not because of it, it solving any problem. Right. So I'm going to say this and I, I feel weird. We will recognize how futile it is to widen highways, but we will continue to do it because there's this whole pipeline of things that, that kind of make grift off of it. Right. Yeah. I, I just want to, I just want people to, to go into it. People want to know that their spouse is cheating on them. Right. It's just yeah. better to know. Right. And I, so what I really want, is to pull the veil down. And when, when a highway department tells you, as they all do, and you've written some, you've written or or published some great articles about this, that this highway widening will improve safety. Never, never has. When they tell you this highway uh, improvement will improve air quality, absolutely never has. Exactly the opposite. And when they tell you that it will improve congestion, well, you know, Katie Freeway on, and you've, you've got all the examples in your back catalog. I mean, it will for four years, maybe three years. I mean, it depends on your highway. Every DOT will argue those three things for its widening. I think it's really important, you know, to get into the nooks and crannies and make sure, for example, when someone says they're going to fix a highway, they're going to repair a highway, a lot of the stuff that Buttigieg's bill is funding. What do you mean by fix? Oh, a couple more lanes, oh, four more lanes, you know? And people often, what they call a fix or a safety improvement is actually an expansion. And I just want to get through that bullshit, you know, and Uh expose it. That's where I've been too, is that I want our cultural language to reflect reality because I I, I do still see how, you know, when the, the big project comes in, we talk about it in those terms. But even the people on the ground who are using that terminology are generally tied to the land developers who have the you know the next iteration of land they're trying to get get turned the commercial real estate guy who's looking at the next line of strip malls and that kind of stuff that is i feel like deeply cynical and almost dirty 
trafficking in that conversation because you're almost like, all right, I know what's the line from the big short. It's like, I know you're going to screw me. Just tell me how you're going to screw me. Right. Like, I just want to, I just want to know, right. Like I'll do the deal with you, but just be upfront about how you're going to screw me. Right. <laughs> that's the, the okay. virtue of Texans. The virtue that's, they say the virtue of Texans is they'll tell you how they're screwing. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to this congestion thing, I just want that because I, I do feel like, I feel like when I started in the engineering profession, people believe the lies that we told ourselves, right? I feel like today, fewer people believe the lies we tell ourselves. Like there's more people, but they still say them, right? Like they still speak them. And I think you're kind of pointing to a time when no one will believe it. We'll all speak it, but there really will be a deep understanding that these are lies. Yeah. There's a whole nother kind of bandwidth wagon I want to get on. That's the wrong term. There's a whole other kind of intellectual argument that I want to surface and I I want to make visible. And we're just at the cusp of it now. And I'm going to try to articulate it properly. I mean, I said this in the first book, traffic studies are bullshit, But, but it's more than that. No one should ever do a traffic study ever again, because a traffic study is inevitably a self fulfilling prophecy. Now, if you begin, if if the principal act of planning is traffic studies, which it currently is, you know, if you want to know what people care about, look at where they spend spend their money, right? And the principal thing that people are paying for when it comes to planning our communities these days is traffic studies. What a traffic study does is, first of all, you're starting with a condition, if you have congestion, you're starting with a condition which is saturated and, and in which the congestion is an equilibrium that represents exactly how much people are willing to put up with. The amount of traffic is a function of people's willingness to put up with traffic. And that itself is an equilibrium. You can have that, which is why induced demand happens, right? Driving is effectively free good. You don't pay the full cost. If you own a car, the smart thing is to do with it is to drive it all the time. It's a simple economic argument. Because of that, and because there's not significant, you know, we don't do congestion pricing here, uh, not even in New York yet, the biggest constraint to driving is congestion. And therefore, any system that's congested is at an equilibrium that will remain congested. You take that system and you drop into it any development, any new housing, any new offices, anything you want to put there, or any improvement that makes the street system safer. For example, in Orlando, we want to change this uh, 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 to this. (laughs) We've got three streets. We're basically taking two three-lane one-ways, and we're trying to make it into three two-lane two-ways. You drop that into a system. Well, first of all, the system, the models that they're using to study it are growing a percent and a half every year. The current system's going to fail based on that. So you take that system, which is guaranteed to fail with any growth, and you try to model growth in it. The only way you cannot make it fail is to remount your streets. So the very first thing you're directed to do if you want your city to grow is to induce the trips that are that are you that you fear, and and uh, you know there's very few cities, even Boston, where they're they're willing to reduce throughput in certain very highly transit served places. They're willing to see throughput drop. Finally, this administration, not the prior administration, this administration is willing in key areas to reduce throughput, but most cities aren't. But you take that situation and you try to uh, make any sort of improvement to a city, and you're just stuck. Because the first thing they ask for is a traffic study, so I don't know. I don't know how to get past it, because even in the enlightened places I'm working, we have to produce a traffic study that shows that that they won't be screwed. If you're presuming the traffic is growing, which most studies do, then you can't do that. So I think it's a real dead end, and I don't know because even I've had trouble articulating it right now to you, right? So I mean, I feel like I've been having trouble. So how do you make that a cultural wide argument. I don't, I just don't, I don't see it succeeding as a cultural conversation that the traffic study, you know, the the two great failures, which is the entirety of the, you know, the traffic engineering profession, the two great failures of the traffic engineering profession, which is the entirety of the traffic engineering profession is a failure to acknowledge that environment influences behavior either around safety or around congestion. And they just lead us in the wrong direction in both cases. So it's very frustrating. Let me add on to that, though, because I do feel like the traffic profession has has some great insights on driver behavior and driver response when they're dealing with 
highways and highway construction. I mean, that's the the thing that's always frustrated me is that driver behavior, when you're, I, I wrote this in my book, how many times we had to design to compensate for the drunk driver, right? So we recognize the drivers make mistakes and errors, and we got to build in all the stuff for them. But then when we get to an urban area, we have to ignore driver behavior and driver input and just look at vehicles as like a static, you know, ever-growing model. And it's, it is... I agree with you. I've called it propaganda. We would be better off in society if traffic studies were banned, like just went away because they provide no utility, nothing nothing of value. Um, and quite frankly, I mean, literally like zero, If even getting rid of like the negative value they create, but just like, let's steel man the argument for a traffic study. You are making up stuff to justify or not justify doing something you want to do or don't want to do. It is pure fabrication and it adds nothing to the conversation. Well, I mean, the, I'd like to think that there's some, at the level of the process, I like to think that there's a real scientific intention behind most of the traffic studies that I'm associated with because they're, you know, they're being applied earnestly by people who aren't trying to bullshit anyone. But you know, 25% of traffic studies are 50% off, right? 50% of them are 25% off. And I've seen studies that, that are even crueler than that in terms of assessing their their uh, effectiveness. But but I think the most important starting point is to acknowledge that if your first act as a planner is to do a traffic study, then you're basically creating traffic. There's no other outcome. There's no other outcome to doing the traffic study than to welcome more cars. Right. Yeah. So. Okay. So let's switch to planners. And this is where I want to end today. It's interesting because I go back and forth between thinking that planners are an important part of the future and that we really need like better planners doing better work. And then imagining a world where planners have just been made irrelevant and we just march on without them. You seem to hold out more hope or you're more optimistic in some ways. I don't know, maybe not. T tell me tell me your take, and then let's talk a little bit about this um, pledge that you put together. Did you like the planning pledge? I did like the planning pledge. I wrote something, oh boy, about a decade ago that was a little bit similar, a little bit more strong townsy, but it went nowhere, right? Like no, no planner is going to tell the audience about the pledge. So my book together. ends with a planner's pledge, which is really a writing exercise or a thinking exercise. But I would love it if it became real, and I'm I'm beta testing it. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious if anyone else out there embraces it, modifies it, improves it, and considers making it real. And if, if it turns out there's some movement to make it real, I would like to participate in that movement. But I uh, didn't write it with the intention of pursuing it. I wrote it with an intention of showing what planners should be doing that planners aren't doing. And it took many years of being a professional planner and now a fellow of the AICP who doesn't regularly go to their conferences, but is very proud to have that, you know, those letters after my name and appreciates very much the ethical leadership and the professionalism that we're, we're taught to maintain by the American Planning Association and by the American Institute of Certified Planners, which is a, you know, connected uh, structure. It struck me after all these years, looking at the, the leadership that's coming from that organization and realizing that they have never taken a bold stance against sprawl. You know, in the same way that doctors at a certain point said, you know, we got to stop bleeding patients and actually leeches, you know, leeches aren't a good idea as a general practice. And there's some real science that we now know what's good medicine, what isn't good medicine. And if you don't practice good medicine, you're going to lose your license. We now know as planners what's good planning and not good planning. You you absolutely can't argue if you studied planning. You can't argue that that automobile-based planning is anything but destructive to our culture, to our health, to our economy, to our planet. Yet the AICP or the APA has never taken a full-throated stance on sprawl or on the other things that kind of contribute to places not being walked. I basically say that, like I ask yeah, why. It's a great section. There's also a very 
sad history of planning in the sense that, you know, as I say, as, as an establishment organization and an establishment profession that's always been associated with power, the planners have always kind of represented and, and enabled the dominant ideologies of their time, right? So they participated in everything that our society has done badly. Um, and of course, that includes very much the racist segregation of our landscape the redlining, and, redlining the, yep. and all of that. And yes. the, um, the the urban the, renewal uh, and the blight removal and the highways yeah. planning and yeah and, and and Harlan Bartholomew you know as I was coming up in school I learned to respect Harlan Bartholomew one of the great early American planners and then I'm now I'm quoting Rothstein uh, Richard Rothstein who wrote The Color of Law say as Rothstein documents ruthlessly single family zoning was invented as a way to preserve race based zoning after segregation was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Much of this was accomplished under the expert guidance of the much revered city planner, Harlan Bartholomew, who lived from 1889 to 1989 and therefore ostensibly spent an entire century being a racist prick. And then I explain why. Because <laughs> he, he actively, in meetings with all the other white men, you know, said, oh, we can't use the race-based zoning anymore. Let's make it single-family zoning. And then they won't be able to afford these houses and we'll have the same outcome, right? And that was intentional. So anyway, the APA should has, I think, acknowledged that history um, and done pretty good job, done a pretty good job, I think, at, at addressing some of the, the sordid racial issues and other things in its past. But it hasn't, it hasn't really connected it to sprawl in a meaningful way. So I have an introduction that kind of says that. And then I've proposed a first draft of the open letter that a properly reformed APA would issue to its membership and the media. It contains, in addition to a long overdue mea culpa, something I'm calling the planner's pledge, a commitment each planner would make to plan well and not badly. It's a first draft, but I welcome the APA to run with it. So I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll just start it out. An open letter to all professional planners and the general public from the American Planning Association. As an establishment organization that has pushed for what it believed to be best practices while inevitably advancing the dominant ideology of its society, the American Planning Association wishes to formally apologize for the significant role that it has played in creating the unsustainable suburban sprawl development pattern that now constitutes most of the American built environment, reinforcing race and class segregation while burdening the vast majority of citizens with the mandate of car ownership. To put it bluntly, we have participated and continue to participate in the creation of a landscape that separates us ruthlessly, both from different activities and from different people, such that we are inordinately dependent on our automobiles and less connected to one another. While citizens of other nations enjoy daily life in walkable, mixed-use, diverse neighborhoods, the typical American lives in a cluster of economically identical single-family houses where it is impossible to safely walk to work, school, shopping, recreation, or worship. The outcomes of this pattern of growth could not be more profound. We've gained weight, lost economic resiliency, exacerbated inequity, and undermined the social fabric as our daily driving cooks the planet. This changes today. Professional planners who sit in city and town halls across the nation and create the rules that shape our growth in being directly responsible for the current circumstances must take responsibility for changing them. Apologies are not enough. We must step forward with a new model of professional conduct designed to undo nearly a century of misdirection. It will take many years to reverse the zoning laws and transportation standards that created and reinforce our car-dependent landscape. Politics will continue to favor business as usual. The home building and road building industries will keep pushing for more of the same and will keep funding politicians who do their bidding. But municipal planners as a profession can take a stand. In some places, we will be effective in changing the rules. It's already happening in Minneapolis, Seattle, and elsewhere, and every place makes a difference. Then I talk about how it's enforceable because this can be enforced like the code of ethics that we have to follow. I talk about how the AICP imprimatur has lost its luster and a lot of people don't really feel the need to be AICP because it doesn't have any meaning anymore, but this would give meaning to that imprimatur. There's a whereas, there's a whole bunch of whereases, which is kind of understandings that we share. Then there's a pledge of things we will do and a pledge of things we won't do. Some of the whereases, the, the whereas, Car-dependent development is destructive to our health, our economy, our environment, and our social fabric. Planning around the cars, self-fulfilling prophecy, traffic studies, and parking minimums perpetuate and worsen the very car dependence they hope to mitigate. Land use zoning, beyond its original purpose of separating houses, housing from noxious uses, 
creates car dependence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it even gets into some little details like homelessness is a condition that cities can address most affordably by first providing housing and only subsequently placing any demands on the person housed. Like this is, we know this, this is a fact. You know, the, the, the housing first cities pay half as much for their homeless as the ones that refuse to, to be nice. Um, I pledge that I will encourage housing, encourage more housing in walkable areas, encourage the construction of schools that most students can reach on foot or bike, encourage the construction of small local parks and other amenities, mandate inclusionary zoning, allow accessory dwelling units everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then it gets into details, Chuck, like replace traffic signals with always stop signs wherever feasible. Then I pledge that I will not encourage or assist in the consolidation of schools or parks into larger facilities. Encourage or assist in the development of any autonomous driving technology or any technology that limits the freedom of pedestrians and cyclists. Because, you know, we're all worried about cattle gates when the AVs come in and they're only half AV. Locate any parking lots between a right-of-way edge and a front door. Right. So it gets into details like that. Then in signing this pledge, I understand that it is equally binding as the AICP Code of Ethics and that any violation thereof is grounds for revocation of my professional certification. Thank you for your consideration as you embark upon this profound change to our way of serving the public. To professional planners, we ask for your understanding and compliance. To everyone else, we ask for your forgiveness. <laughs> so that's that's what the that's the statement I want issued from the planning APA. We'll see if anything happens. I'm not counting on it. But I do think that we can work to reform or just sue the pants off the engineers. We also need to work to reform the planners, not as individuals so much, but as, as an institution. I think the institution of the APA and AICP has not provided the leadership that it could in terms of causing planners to do good work and not bad work. Jeff, do we need a good American Planning Association? Do we need a robust AICP? I appreciate the idealism and what you've written here. I think you and I could sit down and create an AICP from scratch and have it be a, a very effective like force for yeah, good. It's, it's, in called, this world. it's called the CNU. We did that. Yeah, we did that. Right. I agree. <laughs> I always say that the CNU is a, the AICP plus a planning ethic. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Or APA with a planning ethic. You're asking, does it, does it matter? You're asking, does it matter? APA. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know. So like, I'm the kid who goes to Jonesville High School. And so he wants to improve, you know, the student body's con contribution to Jonesville. This is my milieu. And I want to do everything I can to at least get things right at home. I have immense respect for that. So yeah, I want to approve the APA because it's an organization I'm a member of and I participate in that that has some influence and power, but do I think that that's enough? No. Do I think just fixing the engineers are enough? Uh, I think it's more important than the APA, but but no. But but I think, Chuck, there are people in every profession like us who are trying to do the same thing in their own way, certainly in terms of, of ecology and, and forestry and, and everything, fishing, everything, everything. And, and so I think if we if we work to change the playing field, and the playing fields that we personally play on, that's a good start. I feel like that's a good place to end. We definitely need those people within those professions to step up. We need them to be better at what they do. And I feel like you've put together a book here with an update that is something, if you lack the words, if you lack the capacity, not everybody obviously can communicate the way you do, Jeff, but everybody has access to this book and can hand it to someone and say, hey, this is a real good primer on where our community should be headed, why we should be headed that way and make a huge difference in their place. So thank you for coming on again. Thank you for the update to the book. It is a beautiful book and it is uh, even more beautiful now. So thanks, man. It's nice to see you again. Well, I just like these excuses to, to talk with you and be stimulated by your brain. Um, <laughs> and uh, like I'm telling everyone and I show it on the screens in all my lectures, after you read my book, <laughs> or maybe before, you need to read uh, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. I think, you know, the Strong Towns book is, is, is wonderful. It deals with a lot of economic stuff that I don't even dive into. 
but the uh, engineering arguments in your more recent book are so important, so well put. You're a great writer. Uh, the two of us alone aren't going aren't gonna to do it, but there's enough other people out there. Uh, and a lot of non-white males also, Chuck, I would add. Yes, um, absolutely. Who are, who are making, making Growing great- number. If I or you, right, can can help convince some people, it's it's uh, every every person counts, and and we are making change. Well, you are very kind, and you're not exaggerating because I get the tweets and the texts and everything else from everyone who goes to your talks, and they'll say Jeff Speck mentioned you, and I'm like, oh, that's <laughs> that's very kind. <laughs> so yes, we'll keep doing what we can. Great, thank you so much. I'll see you for a fifth time sometime soon. I hope. Well, last year we had the year where we ran into each other in multiple places, and I'm hoping this year it's more than just CNU, but uh, we'll yeah. see. Okay. All right. Take care, friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.